I think we all become so accustomed to the illumination of modern life that we tend to forget how much big of an impact it has on our physiology. Close your curtains, hide your kids. Blue light monster, it's here. It's common knowledge amongst biohackers and functional health practitioners that blue light exposure in the evening is gonna disrupt your circadian rhythms and it's gonna decrease your sleep quality. But how seriously they take it and how bad it really is, that's a whole other story. Welcome to the Body, Mind and Power podcast. I'm your host Seem Lund. And in this episode, we're not gonna actually be on the Body, Mind and Power podcast because it's a special episode. Instead, we're gonna hop on the Biohackers live show hosted by my dear friends from the Biohackers Summit and Biohackers Center from Finland. We're gonna start doing these weekly live streams with different guests from the field of biohacking, human optimization and overall awesomeness. So, I have this imaginary audience. Um, I feel like some dictator. Uh, you can definitely expect more of these different voices on this podcast. And uh, I just wanted to share, I just wanted to get the message out there and to use my podcast as to bring more awareness about the Biohackers Live show as well. Like 95% of the patients I meet don't sleep enough. For this particular episode, I only hopped on for a few minutes and I made this short little video clip. But you can expect me to be on there for the entire show in the next live stream. This live stream is going to be with Daniel Party, who is the CEO of Human.OS. Now, 15% of the population is sort of extreme owls, meaning that they stay up extra late. And 15% of the population is extreme larks, meaning they get up really early and they wake up, they're ready to go. They also fall asleep by like, you know, eight or nine. They're... But other than that, I'm going to let the other hosts of the Biohackers live show, Temu Arina and Olli Sovjarvi, walk you through this special episode of the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. Body, Mind, Empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Biohackers live show. My name is Teemu Arena. I'm your host today. I'm sitting here in the Biohackers studios together with Dr. Oli Soviari. Welcome. Thank you, Timo. Awesome. Awesome to have you here. Uh, how was your day? What did you have for breakfast? <laughs> nothing <laughs> nothing i guess nothing is a pretty typical answer nowadays for a lot of biohackers nothing. yeah well I, I had a good uh perfect fatty coffee with some collagen but uh not until noon so i usually fast yeah i've been fasting as well i yeah. mean fasting is pretty trendy as well so <laughs> so that's that's what's up um this is our first live show in in uh in English, uh, pretty much. We did a Finnish version last week, so we welcome all of you. Also, our Finnish audience that has been invited, as well as our English audience. And this is part of our series to kind of combine a more um, uh, kind of humoristic and lively uh, talk show with biohacking topics and re serious research and serious guests. So our uh, today, our guest is going to be Don Party. He's, he's a sleep researcher. I'm going to tell about him in a moment. But um, if you are watching this live, you can join in by using the hashtag BiohackersLive. So BiohackersLive, that you can use on Twitter and Instagram. On, 
on Facebook and YouTube. You can follow Biohacker Summit and uh, also on our YouTube channel. Um, you can find us on this live stream. And the show notes for this recording are going to be at biohack.to slash party. Uh, you're going to find all the stuff that we talk about there. Um, we, we're going to be updating it right after the stream. Today's guest um, who's coming in is Dan Party. I'm going to run first a little intro for, about him. So let's see. So Don Party is someone who I have wanted to, to interview for quite some time. I've been in contact with him. I tried to get him to the Biker Summit. Uh, he's been busy building human OS uh, that leverages novel behavior models to promote healthy, uh, health fluency, skill development, and lifestyle insights to help people master their health practice. Uh, he's not just a CEO. He's a sleep researcher, and he has done research uh, with the Psychiatry and Behavioral Science Department at Stanford and at the Department of Neurology and Endocrinology at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where he investigates, uh, investigates how lifestyle factors like sleep influence decision-making, cognitive performance, and metabolism. I have to say that some of the podcasts that I've been listening online, um, Dan's uh, has been one of my one of my seriously biggest favorites. So um, with that... Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get Dan in. Uh, let's get Dan live. So get so, in, man. Get in, man. How are you doing? <laughs> what an intro. Yeah, I'm doing really well, and I have to say that is a real pleasure to be here. I have been an admirer of your guys's work for quite some time as well, and so uh, I've been looking forward to That's this. Great. this <laughs> yeah, awesome. We have also audience. Um, <laughs> audience uh, interactions and reactions. Uh, you can't hear them, uh, but our live oh. audience definitely can. So, for example, I can boo, I think. Yeah, yeah, I can do that as well. So, I have this imaginary audience. Um, I feel like some dictator uh, running for office or something with all these buttons and all that that I can throw in. So, um, uh, so, so where are you based right now? Where are you calling in? Yeah, so I live just north of San Francisco in a cool town called Mill Valley. Uh, so it's 15 minutes from the city, but it's also 20 minutes from the beach and a couple hours from the snow. And right below a place called Mount Tam, which uh, is peppered with hikers and mountain bikers and great views of the city. So it has this unique locational uh, disposition of feeling like you can be completely in nature and yet you're in, you're in the thick of a big city within minutes so it has it has that nice duality of living if that's what you love then you would love helsinki for sure helsinki is uh, is, is like that for my first visit <laughs> it's like a, it's like a forest pretty much yeah. uh, although yeah. it's it's a city and everything happens within a few few miles um only um so you've been looking at optimal recovery from a standpoint of being a physician so uh, Dan is someone who has been researching this, and um, mm. in, in your practice, like uh, where do you uh, rank um, uh, sleep and recovery uh, in your in your opinion? Uh, both together, I would put it in number one, like the most important thing that you can do health wise. 
of course, nutrition is important, but uh, what I've seen among patients when I start like uh, sleep uh, interventions and, uh, and the research, how much they actually sleep, it, it's that like 95% of the patients I meet don't sleep enough. So that's like the basic fundamentals and they don't have enough recovery. So even though, even though if you had like a perfect nutrition, but you still wouldn't sleep enough and recover, the nutrition wouldn't do mm. that much. Right. So basically sleep is a cornerstone of being healthy. Everything else yeah. to optimize comes after that. So exercise and nutrition, all that. If you don't sleep enough, uh, you're not uh, going to get the benefits from those. For sure. And I can also talk about my own experience, like five, six, seven years back when I slept only five and a half an hours and I was constantly tired, but I still pushed myself and uh, worked like pretty long hours in the ER and also partying in the evenings uh, or weekends and trading four four to five times per week so it wasn't a good combination in in terms of chronic stress so i've been there (laughs) you've been there so dan uh my in my experience a lot of people who are into health and uh fitness and well-being and all that they usually have gone through their own demons and um Mm -hmm. so is that the reason why you get interest in sleep research you know that's actually a really interesting question and I don't often talk about it much, but I, the answer is no, that's not why I got into sleep. But what was what's so interesting about that question is that at the same time that I started to get into the sleep professionally, I was actually dealing with some really issues, serious sleep issues myself. It was because I was, um, I'll just tell you how I got into it in the first place. I was working for a bioinformatics company that company had raised $175 million, one out of business. And through connections at that company, I ended up working for a pharmaceutical company called Orphan Medical. And Orphan Medical is a really cool company. They were basically trying to help. Uh, an orphan disease is one that has less than 200,000 people that have it within the United States. So it's, it's not a big enough population size for large pharmaceutical companies to get enough financial remuneration to then want to then develop uh, medications to help them. And so Orphan was working with the FDA to say, okay, this, these people, this is a pop, these are populations in need and the FDA is going to give special, uh, you know, tax breaks, et cetera, to then work with this company to, to get drugs to these people that need them. The, the one condition that Orphan was really focused on was narcolepsy, which is a sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. And so I knew nothing about sleep and I, but I found it interesting because at that point, what I already knew is that my interest is to work in areas um, that affect the way that people live. So of course, sleep is one of them. And that was immediately obvious to me before I even knew anything about it. And as I started to get into the field, as, as I started to understand sleep better, it was a pretty immediate love affair because, yeah. Yeah, you it, you see this as a window into how the brain and body work and how many different connections there are to understanding um, how we live in the world and, and how that is in some ways uh, predetermined by the sleep that you're getting or got last night. Mm-hmm. And so I would go to the Associated Professional Sleep Society meeting every year, which is the big US-based sleep meeting. 
There's also the European Sleep Research Society meeting. They do that in, in Europe every two years. So there's, there's a variety of different types of meetings, but the, the APSS is the biggest. And there would be at simultaneously six different presentations that I wanted to go to at the same time. And it was, I remember sitting there with my conference book and it was, I'm like, what do I, you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> what am I going to, which session am I going to go to? And I just, it was that sort of immediate love affair. Now back mm. to your question. I at the time was a young guy who was going out a lot and, um, you know, single. So I would spend my Friday and Saturday going out, um, you know, dancing and just being out like a normal young person mm. in the mid twenties. And I would, because I cared about my health, I always have, I would try to get eight hours of sleep per night. Um, but what I ended up developing and inducing in myself was basically this really serious state of social jet lag. Yeah. Um, which doesn't mean, which means that instead of getting on a plane and flying from here to Helsinki, you can induce a very similar phenomenon of jet lag just by the way that you live, even though you're not actually getting on a plane and traveling at all. Oh. And because I was doing, oh yeah. So because I was doing that so consistently <clears throat> and thinking, well, I just need to get eight hours of sleep, which I was focused on. I ended up having uh, really serious wakefulness issues um, and I was very worried about it. I didn't know what was happening, but when I actually got a sleep study done around the same time, my level of sleepiness was comparable to that of people, to somebody with narcolepsy hmm. and narcolepsy. I mean, most people think of that condition as those that are, that fall asleep at the drop of a hat. And it's true. They have what's considered really clinically meaningful sleepiness. So it's something that, that you, they'll even take methamphetamine as a prescribed drug for them, and that won't completely resolve the sleepiness that they experience. And so the, the reason why is because they're missing a special protein in the brain called hypocretin, also called orexin, because it was co-discovered by two different labs at the same time. So mm. forever now, every journal paper will either still have to call it both. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Uh, it was anyway. So the person, my personal experience, made me even more interested to try to resolve this, which I think is a core fundamental aspect of biohacking. Either you're trying to resolve some health issue that you have, or it, or you're just trying to optimize. And it can either be either way. So I call that like the unsatisfied sick, right? You're, you've got an unsatisfactory resolution of something that's been bugging you, or you're just figuring out all possible ways to, you know, perform best in your life, or both, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be binary. But it's this idea where some sort of motivational source is driving you to then understand this area that you now perceive as an opportunity to do better in your life in one way or another. And for me, that was absolutely mm. true. And it was sort of this dove, this two different aspects at the same time. One, which was trying to resolve a personal health issue, which was poor wakefulness quality during the day and the resultant poor cognitive functioning that I was mm. experiencing. And... Uh, just a sincere scientific interest in the fundamentals of sleep and how that relates to the body and how the body works. So that's my personal background, both from my professional yeah, serendipitous, wow. serendipitous perspective and also one that, uh, you know, at one point I can say that I was worried about the rest of my life. I didn't know what it was going to be like because I didn't know how to solve this problem that <clears throat> where I was, I was falling asleep um, when I was driving. Um, I had, I, was, I, I sounded like I was drunk a lot because I would slur my words and I couldn't remember mm. friends' names. It was, and it lasted for, you know, I'd say close to two years. And um, mm. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you got into biohacking uh, your personal issue pretty much, uh, kind mm. of digging deeper into 
how to solve that. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you if you think about the social jet lag, so I think in the past five or ten years, uh, it has been rising on the research and it's been like uh, known that it's it's a phenomenon that's actually having a, a huge impact on our sleep and on our overall health. I can totally relate myself to that. When you think about combining partying in the evenings, uh, I mean, uh, in the, in the like, uh, weekends, so you go sleep like six hours later than usually. And also if you do uh, doctor's work, so you are like on ER on call for 24 hours. So you have these interruptions in the normal patterns of sleep, like all the time. So you, so you basically are uh, like sleep dep deprived and also checked like the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And you had a personal experience about that. And uh, that's something I also wish that people would like recognize that it's, it's, it's about the rhythm. Yeah. So to one degree or another, that is emblematic of modern living. And so whether or not you're a young adult or an adult of any age that is staying up late because of social, um, you know, <laughs> opportunities, things that are appealing, <laughs> you, know, you want to go out and have, have fun with friends. Or if you do what I called modern shift work, right? Though, let me explain what typical shift work is. Typical shift work is, let's say you have a job where you have to work from eight to five every day. So white collar job, basically. Yeah. But then a couple of times per week or month, you actually have to work, let's say a night shift. So you start work at, I don't know, let's say midnight and you have to work until late in the morning. Mm. That is traditional shift work. And a lot of those jobs are really important. Firefighters, police, first responders, uh, nurses, yeah. right? I mean, life doesn't always wait for daytime hours, um, you know, for uh, requirements of human intervention. So <clears throat> that's typical shift work. What I would say Modern day, and 15% of the United States actually has jobs that require some some sort of shift work with uh, within that the the requirements of the job, but way more uh, is this modern day shift work, which is you go to work at eight, you come home at five, you spend time with family, and there's more work to do. And so when the the kids go to bed, you spend another couple of hours several times a week where you're not getting bombarded with emails than just trying to catch up on work or doing some deep work because it's qu it's quieter, mm. um, you're getting less disruption. And that is really, really emblematic of how many of us, possibly a majority, I don't know that to be true, but possibly a majority of us live. And that, you know, it could be work. It could just be you're taking time for to be social or, you know, to do own personal activities, whether it's, even if it seems insignificant, right? We always will fight to get more personal time. But right. that, what that leads to is that some nights you're going to bed at, let's say, 1030. Mm. Another night you're going to bed at one or two or three. Mm. And that, if you think about it, natural mm. living communities, that the amount of light exposure that they're getting and even sleep times were much more consistent. And so mm. this social jet lag is a real phenomenon and it's a real issue. Mm. What are the main kind of disruptors? Um, yeah. Yeah, so the main one is light that is a big that's a big issue and we live in a very strange light environment i just submitted a piece for this all the different ways that light influences our health i mean from a very one that people immediately recognize is right we have some bunch of blue light here 
Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is a not, right. not natural environment. <laughs> I, I actually yeah. have an app yeah. called DMinder, which I'm using to track my exposure to sunlight. I think that's good. Okay. Yeah. Are you enjoy? I've heard that. I've heard good things about that app. It's and, great. I'm going to do a yeah. review of that like in a later episode, but it's, oh, good. I think it's worth it. It's really good. Mm. Oh, good. I'll share that in my channels too. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard good things, but I've not used it myself. So light is, light is critical, right? We know that getting enough light on our skin during the day has a component to producing adequate amounts of vitamin D, which you can also get dietarily, but we get a lot more exposure to uh, sunlight when we were living in temperate environments with you know, full body exposure to, to light. And now that's changed pretty, you know, I mean, depending, now it's very different than even if it was 200 years ago. 200 years ago, there was a lot more agrarian style jobs, meaning people were working out in the fields. Now, 90% of people, the majority of people spend 90% of their time in, indoors. Right. And so if you think about that light signature across 24 hour period, what does that mean? That means we're getting less intense light during the day. We're getting uh, we're not getting the tone differences, right? So how does the tone of light change as the sun is rising, the sun peaks, and then the sun sets? And then we're getting more artificial light. So we're limiting the amount of darkness that we're getting mm -hmm. exposed to because one of the reasons why we're truncating sleep so we're getting less sleep. So that's enough so that now we're getting more artificial light past sundown and we're getting less, uh, we're having more total awake time because artificial light also can artificially stimulate us almost like coffee in a different mechanism. And so even though you would, if you were laying outside camping, you might totally feel like going to bed at 8.30 or so, you don't. And you're getting stimulated by both the content of whatever you choose to engage with, whether it's a book or Netflix or whatever. And the light itself is saying, well, I'm not sleepy yet. I'll just keep watching this until I feel sleepy. And so what that ends up happening is you have asynchronization of your circadian 24-hour rhythms. And what does that mean? So it's a lack of a very strong, robust rhythm. And in a natural environment, uh, hunter-gatherers, interestingly, don't have very, their sleep looks less good than modern living humans. We could talk about that in a bit, but they have very robust circadian rhythms. That means they have a very strong alertness rhythm during the day and they have a very, and then that strong alertness rhythm really drops off and so they have deeper yeah. sleep seemingly. As, as long as they are not stuck in a cave somewhere. I guess. Yes. Yeah. So the, <laughs> you know, you can imagine sleeping in like these, we have, we have a great ability now to, I think, get better sleep than we've ever gotten if we do the right things. That's the optimistic message is that mm. we don't have to totally return to the, to the bush in order to get the sleep that we need, but we do need to be able to harness certain, our understanding of certain mechanisms to make sure that our lives are populated with these fundamental signals that mm. help us be healthy. They're not, they're not even they're not even helping us be healthy. They're a part of our health. Yes, oh, that's, that's totally well put. So, uh, Dan, what would you be would be your uh, advice for Finnish people who are like here yeah. here in the darkness for like four months per, per every year and having seasonal affective disorders and and what what have you? So, uh, yeah, how, how do we how can we biohack that that we have enough light, enough healthy light, and yeah. so on? Yeah. So we know um, one of the there's a lot of different consequences to light ex to inappropriate light exposure. Some of them are metabolic, 
some of them have to just do with the timing of circadian rhythms, which then lead to the functioning of the rest of the body, which we can discuss later. And some of them are a direct effect of light coming into the brain and how that influences um, the healthy functioning of like our hippocampus, which is involved in memory formation uh, and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways that light matters. And if you're in an environment where you're not getting even the even outdoor exposure to um, to light is, is absent part for parts of the year, then what can you do? Well, I'll tell you a story that my friend told at Stanford when he was giving a presentation, um, Raymond Ajar, he's a, a professor, and he was doing work on the Concordia, which is a base station down in Antarctica. So they were looking at arti artificial light during a time mm. when it was 24 hours of darkness, very similar to what you're asking. Mm. And what they did is they had normal, in their base station where they were doing research, they had normal light. Uh, meaning like it was unadjusted lighting, just normal room light that you'd have in a room. And they measured their reaction time. So something called a psychomotor vigilance test, which is a measurement mm. of how quickly you can respond to a stimulus, stimulus mm. which is indicative of the arousal of your central nervous system. So if you, have, if you can't respond as quickly, um, if you have a lot of misses to the signal, this is all representative of a more tired central nervous system, which happens when you don't get adequate sleep or when your mm. circadian rhythms are not aligned like they should be. And they also looked at daily mood and they looked at the timing of when they wanted to be awake and when they wanted to go to sleep. And when 24 hours of darkness under only light, indoor lighting conditions, they found that people's reaction time slowed, their mood was impaired and they mm. wanted to go to bed later and later every day and wake up later and later every day. So what they did is then they changed the light bulbs within the base station and they filled that they filled their daytime lighting with blue enriched white light. So they, these light bulbs emitted stronger blue light, which you, yeah. um, with the way that it almost looks like cool, it doesn't look blue per se, but it looks, has a cool tone to it. And they did what they did is they had them under two weeks exposure to that type of light. And then they flipped back to the normal light for two weeks. And then they did it again with the blue enriched and back. And they did that eight times. And they found an enormously consistent response. Every time that they had the blue enriched white light during the day, their reaction time improved, their mood improved, and their alignment to their circadian rhythm as determined by when they wanted to go to sleep and when they wanted mm -hmm. to wake up, uh, all mm -hmm. aligned. And so sometimes we can think blue light is not good, right? It has had that... Um, it's unfortunately, it's permeated that blue light is not good. It's about timing. You yes. want blue light during the day. Yes. And if you can't get adequate sunshine, which is filled with blue light, mm. then you can you change your environment so that uh, you're getting more of that in the morning and they have things like go mm. lights and light boxes. Um, and so that's what I would recommend. There's sort of a long-winded answer, but I would recommend Particularly if you're noted, even if you're not, if you don't have any sort of symptom like seasonal affective disorder, I still think that it's useful for you to have uh, to anchor your rhythms. So investigate investigate those light boxes, and yes. I, I use yeah, one yeah. Philips by Golight. So we have we have here one. at the office. I mean, every desk we yeah, have like a daylight <laughs> lamp, and that's what we go for. Um, yeah. uh, this is a great opportunity, actually, to bring on some weekly research that I've been digging out. So awesome. If we can get the full screen over there, um, just like uh, just a sec, and we'll run it. Um, let's have the weekly research.
<laughs> so research of the week uh, that's going to be all about the circadian rhythms this is just a reminder uh, to everyone out there that the nobel prize in physiology and medicine uh, molecular mechanisms controlling the circadian rhythm was uh, last year uh, handed over um, to um, the, dis uh, the people who discovered uh, this, the mechanisms behind the circadian rhythm. And uh, there, is, there has been longstanding research and observations on plants and nature around us, how they seem to be synchronizing with light. And they did a little uh, experiment that I'm going to describe to you in a moment. Uh, so... Yeah, already in 1729, researcher observes the mimosa plant opens its leaves during the day, but closes them at night in response to the amount of light. When placing the plant in constant darkness, they observed that the leaves still opened at the appropriate time. The findings were suggesting an endogenous origin of the daily rhythm. So that was kind of the beginning for um, questioning if, if there is something going on in, in biological organism when it comes to synchronizing with the daily uh, light cycle. Uh, using fruit flies as a model organism, the Nobel laureates isolated a gene that controls the normal daily biological rhythm. When the period gene is active, it leads to a generation of a protein. Uh, presence of this protein actually inhibits the gene expression. Uh, this gives rise to the inhibitory feedback mechanism that underlie the circadian rhythm. They also discovered other clock genes and proteins that are required for normal circadian rhythm. Knowledge about these mechanisms can support modifying your lifestyle to reduce risks for development of different kinds of diseases. Um, interestingly, there is some massive research effort currently underway uh, to study the effects of timing on anti-cancer therapies around circadian rhythm. Uh, the cancer chronotherapy, as they call it, expands the chances of achieving the maximal possible therapeutic effect in therapies. So far, the trials of cancer uh, chronotherapy have shown the timing of genotoxic therapies within a circadian cycle produces significant low, significantly lower rates of severe adverse effects than conventionally timed therapy. So this is uh, just an example of uh, where we are getting into in terms of how the clock um, synchronizes things and how you can time nutrition, how you can time uh, dietary choices, uh, travel, um, and in this case, therapies. So what else, Dan, have you kind of discovered that it is affecting um, uh, and in our lives? Yeah, I, it's, um, I was predicting that a Nobel Prize would be won in work in circadian rhythm. And so when Jeffrey Hall and Michael Rosebash and um, Michael Young won the Nobel Prize, I was pleasantly surprised. These are mechanisms that are fundamental to all life. We were, we've all evolved in a planet that had an oscillating 24 hour cycle of day and light. And the ability for living organisms to structure their activities according to the different demands that take place during light and dark, and they're different, right? Some animals are nocturnal, which means they're more active during the dark. Um, and then they sleep during the day. There are animals that are crepuscular, meaning they're mostly awake during dawn and dusk, right? So there's all different permutations of activity and life, but it is all controlled by activity of circadian rhythms. There is no 
organism that has um, the same type of activity across the 24 hour period. It all oscillates mm. and humans are no different. Mm. So that is a really, it was, I was very pleased to see that work. I was very pleased to see work, uh, not to go out of topic, but to see work, uh, the Nobel prize the year before in autophagy, which is of course stimulated through fasting. So, mm. you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, the microbiome, circadian rhythms, even sleep, uh, fasting, they were not a part of any uh, calculation that was predicting uh, health from lifestyle. It was mostly exercise and diet. Those are the main, those are the main things. And we're now seeing these fundamental determinants of health and healthy functioning now getting the recognition. And as a result of that, we can capitalize on this information and we can create a more sophisticated approach to our own health that hopefully will keep us performing at our best across life and also will extend healthy living and even our lifespan. So that's sort of the essence of what I think biohacking is really aiming to do. And in this case, this light exposure is one of the more fundamental things that one can capitalize on when they have the right information tools and understanding. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, so Dan, uh, what's your take on different chronotypes in humans? So yeah. for example, uh, myself, I am more into like sleeping in and going into bed later, but when I get the rhythm, it's, it's like, it's precisely like I wake up at the same minute every day. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to go to sleep at 10, but it, it's more like uh, past the midnight. Yeah. So a chronotype is a is indicating what genetic structure that you have that of, of your circadian system and where it is predisposing you for being what's considered a morning person or a lark or an evening person, which is an owl. Now, 15% of the population is sort of extreme owls, meaning that they stay up extra late. And 15% of the population is extreme larks, meaning they get up really early and they wake up, they're ready to go. They also fall asleep by like, you know, eight or nine. They're, they they run out there. A lot of their performance is oriented towards morning type activity or conversely with owls towards day, uh, later, later time activity. And then you've got everything in between 60% in between, which um, doesn't have as strong of a phenotypic expression. So they, they could either flip-flop. So you could, just by, based off of how you're living, you could become more of an owl or more of a lark, mm. but you don't have as dramatic of an expression of that. So because we know that these are genetic-based and legitimate, um, an understanding of that can actually really help to guide how we see work times for people that have that just do better work at night or better work mm-hmm. in the morning. So instead of trying to enforce that everybody be there at eight o'clock in the morning and work till five, that that is going to underutilize um, the abilities of an employee that is better suited to coming in later and staying later. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah. Mm. Let, let me tr- um, jump in and yeah. tell you a little story here. So I'm a <laughs> night owl. So I, mm. I definitely work my best at night and that's when I feel I'm less kind of driven by distractions mm-hmm. and also I I tend to be less hungry and I have mm-hmm. less needs and mm-hmm. I was always wondering why that is and then I mm-hmm. uh, dig into some of the research that it, that goes on with blood sugar 
and it seems that my pancreas specifically is highly sensitive to the effects of melatonin. So after sunset, when melatonin production starts, um, what it does, it, it seems like my uh, my blood sugar levels stay elevated in a, mm -hmm. in a much more greater manner uh, because there are all these receptors in the pancreas that are um, basically inhibiting um, insulin release. So it, it seems to me that after sunset, I'm, I'm no longer driven by blood sugar fluctuation. I'm not driven by gravings or anything like this. I can just drink tea or just water mm -hmm. and I can just focus on something and I feel calm doing it. Mm. And mm -hmm. um, I, I wonder if there was some kind of evolutionary kind of benefit to this, like hunting at night or, or something like this that kind of makes me more like a hunter at night instead of a mm -hmm. morning person. Yeah, so I gave a presentation on the evolution of sleep and hunter-gatherer sleep at the Ancestral Health Symposium last year. And uh, for that presentation, I collaborated with David Sampson, who was at Duke University, and he's now a professor at the University of Toronto. Uh, he deserves all the kudos for traveling to Africa and working with the Malagasy and other natural living populations. But um, to highlight uh, one of his research studies, he looked at 30 different natural living people, the Malagasy people in, in Madagascar, and he recorded their sleep over um, 30 days. And what he found is that in, even in this small group of people, this one tribe that there was only 18 minutes over a whole month where all of them were asleep at the same time. Hmm. Mm. Think about that. Okay, mm. so what mm. sort of survival advantage might that confer mm. if you have some part of the population of a tribe awake at all times? That sounds like that an army. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, some, some, some operations will enforce that. You know, you've got the late shift, yeah. but they didn't need to. And... That is, I think, one of the most interesting things. They weren't necessarily telling the young teenagers who naturally have something called delayed sleep phase syndrome to stay mm. up later. They mm. felt like it. Yeah. They weren't telling the older people um, who have uh, cataracts that actually filter blue light that then caught one of the reasons why it causes them to want to get up really early in the morning and go to bed earlier. Mm. Then they also didn't tell people to have insomnia and actually a percentage of the people would wake up and be up for a couple of hours in the middle of the night. They didn't, <laughs> the, the group wasn't instructing anybody to live differently. It happened naturally, but as a result, it led to the fact that there was always somebody up that could mm. alert the rest of the tribe of predators and other things that might uh, imperil the health, the survival of, of the, even an individual within the group. And that is really, really fascinating to me that you could see that even in, within such a small, small group of people. And so mm -hmm. now if you use that information to explain why we might have these variations within different types of, you know, I, hey, I just, I have insomnia and it's driving me crazy. Well, actually, that just might be your phenotypic, that might be just a part of your, your genes. We know mm -hmm. that there's a large contribution uh, to people that have regular insomnia that um, that is genetic. We, mm. we also know that there are those extreme owls and larks, and there's also timing differences. So what phase of, eight, of life you're in, mm. and when you feel like being awake. I know that I was more of an extreme owl before, and now I am not. Um, mm. So that's changed as I've gotten a little bit older. I see. I, but, I, I feel like when I'm traveling in Asia, yeah. where the sun rises really early and it mm. also sets much earlier, 
than mm-hmm. here in Finland that I I have much easier, you know, just by going to sleep uh, early and waking up early. And when I yeah. come back to Finland, that lasts like a week or two, and yeah. then I get mm-hmm. back to my old habits. Yeah. So yeah, um, I, I guess the sun is so powerful in some cases just to like you know enforce your clock to sync. But yeah, in, here in Finland you have to be using all these gadgets and tools like daylight lamps and still it's not as powerful yeah the the light that you get from out the outside sunshine mid-afternoon is orders of magnitude greater so if you yeah. think about yeah. if you refine that the amount of photons that are actually entering in the eye are many more than the amount of photons from artificial light mm-hmm. and so your the problem posed by artificial light at night is way less intense. It's much less of an issue, although still one, if you are outside all day long, because outside light anchors you. It anchors Mm. your circadian rhythm because it's giving it such a strong daytime signal that the light at night, the artificial light at night from TVs and and lamps, et cetera, um, it's less disruptive. But because we're inside all day and we're getting that less of a signal, the, the, the light that we are getting in the evening is more problematic. And that's a really important concept. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. Super, super interesting. So uh, let me jump into another subject. Uh, what, what can you tell us about the polyphasic sleep? So that you sleep one phase and then you do something and then sleep again. How is mm-hmm. that in, in the evolution, evolution of uh, men? And uh, yeah. would you recommend that? Yeah, so polyphasic sleep is, there are, um, first of all, most most of us will sleep in what's considered a mon- monophasic sleep. So you go to bed at, let's say, midnight, and you wake up at 8 a.m. Just use that ar- arbitrary numbers, but that represents a night's sleep. And then you have 16 hours of wakefulness. Although there are many societies across the world where the culture still allows and it permits a siesta. And so you mm. will, mm. you know, you're, you're wake up at a certain time, you're up until the middle afternoon, everything closes, shops close and every, everybody takes a break for a couple of hours and goes and, and sleep. And a lot of them, people will go and sleep, take a nap. And then those cultures usually will be up a little bit later. And over yeah. the course yeah. of 24 hour period, the amount of sleep that they get is not different than the groups that sleep just one phase. Then there's the other concept of polyphasic sleep. So it's instead of biphasic, so sleep instead of you know inserting two different distinct sleep periods within a 24-hour period, you can insert more sleep periods. And the idea a while back um, that was being explored and popularized was: can you actually limit the total amount of sleep that you need by getting more short sleep periods? And that was based off of work from the military that showed improved mental performance and mental acuity under sleep deprived conditions when people were getting multiple bouts of sleep versus mm. one four hour chunk. And that's a really important distinction. Right. If you're not getting enough sleep, polyphasic sleep, short naps can actually help you perform better. And the mm. reason why is it's wearing mm. down sleep pressure. When you sleep, you wear down what is considered sleep pressure. And that can actually be remarkably restorative. So even 20-minute nap can be yeah. more restorative than you would estimate given the amount of time and sleep that you get. Yeah. So, so that, what the problem with that is that that is a really good short-term solution under extreme conditions to help you perform better. So if you're going to be in the military and you're up 
for a hundred hours and you've got a mission and maybe you can take a 10 yeah. minute nap, you might perform better between hours 90 and 100 than you otherwise would have. That's not a good long-term solution to become, let's say a better programmer and just trying to fit more hours into the day. Mm. A lot of what I'm about is not trying to squeeze out things that are fundamental to our health, but to, instead of trying to just get more time in the day, try to make each one of those minutes, every minute, an hour more productive and better. And you, and the way that I think you do that is by really giving in and caring, catering to these natural needs that we have. Mm. Yeah. So uh, can you give us a little elaboration on sleep pressure and how that works as yeah. well as um, your take on using drugs uh, in the military for, for yeah. reasons to stay awake? Sure. So in 1980, uh, Alexander Borbet, who was a Viennese professor, published what's probably the most cited sleep publication in the world um, to this day. It still is, has the most citations, and it's called the two-process model for sleep and wake regulation. And so let's, let's dissect that two-process model. So there's essentially two different processes that are then determining how alert or how sleepy you feel at any point during a 24-hour period. Process one, so the first process in that two-process model is considered sleep pressure. So from the moment you wake up, you are accumulating sleep pressure across the day. And investigation into what is what's considered the neural correlate or what is the actual thing that you can point to in the brain that represents sleep pressure, that was hard for, to figure out. But some really good work by Radhika Bashir and Tara Porka-Heisenin, who's Finnish, um, did work that actually was able to show that it's probably adenosine. And if you think about the Ooh. currency of energy production in the oh, body- it's adenosine. Oh, adenosine. I know that one from yeah. coffee. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So adenosine, if we think adenosine triphosphate, that's energy, right? When that, when that phosphate bond breaks, adenosine diphosphate, you get energy for all the cellular processes that we need. And as that cycle continues, you start to accumulate adenosine. And that is a currency that- neurons can actually use to understand prior amounts of wakefulness. Okay. So that is this pressure that builds up across the day with, with usage. But gotcha. if you think about it, you don't get sleepier from the moment you wake up. That's not how we experience our day. It's not like you woke up, you had the highest amount of alertness, mm. and then it just was this inexorable decline towards feeling more and more sleepy. And the reason why is because the second process, as opposed to sleep pressure, is wake drive. So wake drive is counteracting sleep pressure mm. at every moment of the day. And then at night, and when sleep pressure, when wake drive drops off, you have all this unopposed sleep pressure and that makes you go to sleep and it helps you get into deep stages of sleep and it helps you with neuroplasticity and it helps with all sorts of functions that take place during this during sleep that help prepare the, the mind and body for next day functioning. And so it's this beautiful dance. And as we were talking about before, circadian rhythms. Um, what is wake drive? It is a circadian rhythm. So it's the body understanding what time of day it is based upon previous exposure to light that is then determining the orchestration of all these different wake centers within the central nervous system to then operate at the right time so that it is counteracting your sleep pressure at the right time. And so when you're getting too much light at night, not enough during the day, then your alert, your alertness rhythm, that wake drive might be too active before bed. And it might not start until mid-morning when even though you've already been up for a couple of hours. And this is one of the reasons why coffee is so pervasive because, Timo, as you mentioned, 
caffeine is an is a adenosine antagonist. So it is blocking the effects of adenosine within our brain, mm. and it makes us feel more alert. And so it's a way for us to sort of counteract this mm. phenomenon. Um, but I'll tell you this: when I my sleep rhythm is really well aligned, I definitely need to moderate the amount of caffeine that I'm getting <laughs> into my in, you know that I'm ingesting because I'll just be too stimulated. Um, it'll make mm. me more. The, the same cup of coffee that makes me feel alert today might make me feel anxious to, you know, another day when everything's really lined up as mm. it should be. Mm. That's gotcha. super, super interesting. So if you think about coffee and blocking the adenosine and, and all the variations in the SIP uh, A12 enzyme. So if you're like a slow or fast metabolizer, so that's really important information for, Uh, realizing the sleep pressure against w- what's your wake drive and how how you can adjust that. So, for example, for me, if I drink coffee too late, I I just won't get sleep. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so just to talk a little bit more about that process. So, as adenosine is building up, ultimately it's going to trigger immune chemicals like TNF alpha and interleukin, and it is those immune chemicals that we know are fundamental mm. to the initiation of sleep and to the actual neuroplastic processes that help us learn and uh, help us with learning and memory. And so you could take an animal and you could bathe their neurons with with TNF alpha and interleukins and you can induce sleep. Even if they've just slept a full night, if you actually bathe the neurons with more TNF alpha, it'll extend mm-hmm. sleep. If you block TNF alpha and interleukin, then you can actually disrupt sleep, even though it would be normally time for an animal to sleep. And mm-hmm. so it is, you know, it is this very intimate dance that's taking place with our physiology that's reading how long have you been awake um and so caffeine can be both a good and a bad thing because you don't yeah. want to be blocking it at the wrong time too many yeah. people do gotcha okay so uh i just noticed that simland popped into the show and i'm gonna show a little video of him kind of summarizing what we have been discussing here i'm gonna bring him live into this discussion uh on uh, the things that disrupt our sleep and are kind of lurking in the dark corners of your bedroom and awesome. so so let's let's take a look at this um yeah we're good Great. to go i think we all become so accustomed to the illumination of modern life that we tend to forget how much big of an impact it has on our physiology Close your curtains, hide your kids. Blue light monster, it's here. It's common knowledge amongst biohackers and functional health practitioners that blue light exposure in the evening is gonna disrupt your circadian rhythms and it's gonna decrease your sleep quality. But how seriously they take it and how bad it really is, that's a whole other story. Most of the circadian signaling is transmitted through the retinas through which the blue light travels into the brain and stimulates the inner biological clock. However, it's been shown that shining some blue light on the back of your elbows or the back of your knees is already going to suppress melatonin. In fact, one study used an fMRI analysis to look at how exposure to dim light at night while sleeping affected the brain activity for 20 healthy men. They found that exposure to 10 lux light for one night significantly decreased brain activity in the right hemisphere, which lowered their working memory performance as well. Exposure to 5 lux light didn't have a significant effect 
but it still may have an indirect effect on cognition. That's a scary thing to think about because sleep plays such a huge role in your overall health and your brain's development. Suppressing melatonin because of blue light sneaking into your bedroom prevents your brain from repairing itself and can cause missing out on one of the most vital components of sleep. The invasion of artificial light into the darkness of night can be a big threat to human health and sleep and it's not something you want to overlook. One definite thing you can do is start wearing some protective eyewear in the evening and install some computer filters on your screens that gonna dim the light. It's definitely vital that you sleep in a dark room without dimmed lights or bright screens and you should also close the curtains as to not let in light from outside. Damn those neighbors having their disco parties and stuff. Yeah, nyt kaikki. I've been using blue light blocking glasses for a while now and I definitely notice a significant difference in my sleep quality on the nights that I do wear them. And if I'm wearing like these true dark glasses that are going to absolutely block out all artificial light, then I can actually increase my REM sleep by up to 10 to 15%. So imagine how many people are actually suffering from low levels of melatonin just because they're not wearing any eyewear at all. Their brain literally thinks that they're at the equator with the sun blazing at their eyes. I mean, if you expose yourself to bright screens and lamps at 10 p.m., then you're gonna severely suppress melatonin and you're gonna decrease your sleep quality. It's going to take several hours before melatonin can start to rise again after you dim the lights. And by that time, you have missed out on the most important hours of sleep. Is the technological illumination we've created the path to our enlightenment or the greatest source of our detriment? One thing's for sure, mankind has to learn from its mistakes and has to find solutions of how to bring light into darkness without dangerously offsetting your body's biological clock. So definitely start taking blue light exposure more seriously. But this Coyuta. Alright, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Biohackers livestream. My name is Steam. Stay optimized, stay empowered. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Steam. Thank you, Steam. Thank you, Steam, and welcome also to, to the live stream. I don't know if you have your <laughs> microphone on, but uh, if you do, Jump in. Hello, hello. Okay, good. How's You're... it going, Finland and uh, United States? I'm coming here from Estonia. <laughs> yeah. So. And yeah, we... yeah go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Uh, we we can definitely see like a circadian um, difference as well. Like uh, it's 8 p.m. almost in in these parts of the world. So it's 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 it comes to show like how how technology can uh, allow us to you know communicate. It's an amazing thing still. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and. And to anyone watching, I mean, Seamland is our Estonian uh, kind of secret weapon when it comes to uh, bringing out the biohacking information out there. And, and he's making these cool videos. You can follow him on Seamland on YouTube as well. So, Seam, I mean, you're, you're wearing some glasses. I have some glasses. These are my computer glasses that I usually use. Uh, it's, it's blocking maybe 10, 20% of the blue light. I seem to be able to use my computer longer periods of time with less strain on my eyes. And I like to switch into more of the red, red ones in the evening. And I also have kind of Philips Hue lights here at the office and everywhere where I, where I, where I am. So I can easily kind of tune a different kind of scenery um, that is more supportive to my circadian rhythm. So um, what's, what's your experience on, on using your 
classes and different ways to hack them. Yeah, like there are definitely like different types of glasses, then they're going to block out, uh, you know, various amounts of blue light. And uh, like the ones I mentioned in the video, the, the red ones, the true dark red ones, those are like the best ones that I've come across of they're actually going to block out almost, you know, all light sources and uh, you can you, you can't actually see you can't see very well. But at the same time, you can also your, your eyes, they're going to get used to it after a while. So I start I usually start wearing them like a few hours before bedtime, mm. like two to three hours. And uh, then I, I can significantly notice like how my brain can also start to wind down itself. And I uh, won't be that alert, you know, like to allow the melatonin to start rising with, with the, you know, after the sunset. And uh, when I've used like the, the O-ring, I've measured, I've seen my sleep data and I've noticed like I can gain like 10% more REM sleep on, day, on the nights that I wear these uh, true dark glasses versus like maybe like the simpler ones. So okay. it's quite, quite significant. So you have some data to back this up that you've been working on some 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 of your experiments uh dan what's what's kind of your take on this like um what's your experience of using uh glasses or computer software like efflux and or or mobile apps um iris uh, iris uh, comes to mind also the the night mode and all that how significant you feel these are in terms of uh helping us to cope with modern technology in an environment where our circadian rhythms have been disrupted in order for those who care to capitalize on known information for extraordinary health outcomes, we need to be a little weird, right? <laughs> Which means we need, to, we need to do things that other people aren't that might draw some eyeballs and some attention. And I'm totally fine with that personally. And others are too. And so, yes, it does matter. We know that essentially what you're creating when you are wearing these glasses is called circadian darkness or virtual darkness, which means that you can see, but you're not telling your brain that it's day. And because of that, you're um, just as Sim mentioned, you're allowing melatonin to rise because melatonin is a darkness hormone. It rises with something called dim light melatonin, dim light melatonin onset. So when the light dims, melatonin starts to rise and that initiates all sorts of programs that our body understands that it's nighttime and that one of those processes is going to be allowing sleep to occur at a, at a more natural time, which is great. That means that we can still live with artificial light and read books and even watch some shows, but we're not getting the negative, the deleterious effects of um, truncating the amount of darkness that we're getting, getting too much um, sort of cognitive arousal from light itself. And so I have, you always have to juxtapose what does the science say and what can we do about it? What is the behavioral aspects that we, um, that was going to help more people do it. And so I have two shades of glasses. So like the ones that you guys are wearing and then also the darker ones. And I also have some settings on my phone that I adjust. Mm. And I also have modified my home so that um, I can set, you know, there's a couple of things you could do. You can dim the light. Right, So even if you don't change the tone of the light, dimming it considerably will reduce the amount of blue light mm. photons that are coming into the eye. So that's one thing that everybody can do is either turn off lights and, yeah. and, and dim wherever you can. So I have rheostats or dimmer switches throughout my house. I also have programs 
in my smart home that are nighttime settings. And what I try to do is I actually, you have to then think, all right, well, where is my nighttime exposure? The worst for me is the refrigerator. You turn it on mm. and it's like, mm. you know, a nuclear reactor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so <laughs> intense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it. So I keep a pair of glasses right by my refrigerator in this spot that's sort of discreet. And I, at night when I'm getting water, cause that's usually, I get some cold water then, or let's say, you know, my four and a half year old, he's, he sort of eats 24 hours a day cause he's a growing hummingbird, you know? So he'll, he'll like want a, you know, a little snack and either way I put those on before I actually uh, will open up the refrigerator, even if I'm not yeah. using them regularly, but I have a lighter shade of glasses that I put on earlier. And then I have a darker, darker ones that I keep closer to bedtime. So within an hour. And for me, that works better than using the really intense ones right away because we did get some light exposure from fire, obviously the phases of the moon and stars. It's not that we were exposed to total darkness after sundown, but the type of light that we had was only of one type. It was low intensity and it was more of the amber tone from fire. So the easiest way to think of it is, is the light exposure that I'm getting post-dark like fire? And that heuristic mm. is really useful to then guide your behavior in your life. Wearing the glasses is one thing, putting on different software programs like F.Lux or Iris, which then changes the tone of your computer if you're doing work later at night. Mm. That's another thing. And then um, I have, uh, so in my interview on my podcast with my mentor, Jamie Zeitzer, he's a circadian biologist who worked under Chuck Zeisler at Harvard. So he's got this incredible lineage of you know, he, he knows his stuff, I'll put it that way. Mm. Um, when, this, this, just, this just reminds me of Greek mythology, you know, Prometheus. Uh -huh. And in that story, um, uh, he defies gods by stealing fire and giving it to humanity. I mean, mm. that's, that's mm. a beautiful story. Like, um, and now we have to give the fire back to people. Uh, yeah. We have taken it away with the artificial lighting, with light, LED lights and all those things <laughs> that basically... Um, Almost yeah. when you're getting to the, you know, infrared range, it's just like peaking off. And uh, we have to yeah. bring that back. We have to bring fire into our lives. Yes. And in my, I'll send it to you, but in my, the write-up of my podcast with Jamie, I talk about a setting on your iPhone where you can essentially create what Sim has with his true dark glasses of the light being emitted from your phone. So I, again, just if I'm looking at my phone in bed and I do do work, for me, that's relaxing because I'll organize my day, I'll collect my thoughts. And that process of doing that is not stimulating, but helps me really have a sort of stress-free night and sleep through the day because I kind of know what I'm getting into. All my thoughts are arranged and collected. So it's, you can't necessarily say that everybody should do that. You have to you have to think about what's going to work for you. Some people doing any work at all is stressful. The best thing for them to do is just have a hard cutoff point and then, you know, just read and, and shift their mind. So that's mm. up for the individual to define. But, but what I do is because I am using my phone later at night, I do make those, those adjustments mm. to my phone and, I'll, and, you, and I have just details about how to do that. So it's just another thing that one can do if, yeah. if you have an iOS yeah. device. Um, uh, let's, let's bring the screen up uh, so that I can show what's going on on my phone. You can probably guys see this as well. Mm. So, so what I have here is when I double tap on the home button, I get a filters and I can apply a color filter and that yep. brings the red hue. Is this the trick that you, you've done? Yes, that's exactly what I do. 
yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. So so there is like accessibility features. Uh, we're gonna put that into the show notes as well, uh, so that uh, anyone watching can get into it. What I also like mm. is like uh, to invert the colors. This mm. sometimes works when I'm reading like something on a white background. It inverts that, so I get mm -hmm. less less of that. It's kind of like a computer terminal almost. Yeah. Um, and let's see uh, if I can also get. Yeah, this one is awesome. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. all gray. <laughs> and, and this is really good if you're browsing social media and you feel like procrastinating. You turn this yeah. filter on and you don't feel like following at all what's going yeah. on on your screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a great opportunity to, to show some apps. So so next up, I'm I'm going to bring on uh, the, the weekly review of an app. You betcha. That's going to be Aura. So the Aura Ring is, is one of the most advanced sleep trackers on the market, definitely in terms of what you can wear on your finger. So uh, Oli and me both, we have like this, this ring. So uh, we can get like a, the in-picture thing. Uh, good. Thank you. So we have these rings. Show me a ring. Cool. Show me the yeah. ring. Yeah. This, this, this ring has really kind of... Uh, spread like wildfire in people who are into biohacking. And um, what I find really useful about this specific uh, tool is the way how it combines sleep analysis, which is looking at your resting heart rate. Um, it looks at your sleep duration, your deep sleep and the REM sleep that you're getting. And uh, it combines all of those into different parameters that is taking into uh, factoring into a readiness index. So it also shows your resting heart rate. It also looks at your activity. I haven't been too active in the last few days. It shows how much you've been sitting. Shows that I've been working on the live stream. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, sometimes you have these periods of time. But I know that in some other periods, I'm highly active, as you can see here. So um, I think sitting is like the tobacco of my generation. So what I like to focus on is to limit my, the amount that I'm sitting around. Uh, and, and that's what Aura helps me to kind of pay attention to, at least consciously. Um, another thing that I really love about it is the readiness index. So it's, it's kind of combining your readiness from the nervous system standpoint. I can tell you that in the last few weeks, I've been working my ass off. And uh, this is a period of my life right now that I'm living in. So I'm not sleeping too much and um, I'm not getting enough recovery. Uh, my heart rate variability, though, is, is, is kind pretty of good. pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, uh, so that's what I like to follow when I'm going mm. through these crunches like I'm right now. So I'm, I'm following my resting heart rate. If that's kind of getting more elevated, uh, you can see some elevation here. Um, uh, I got it back down. Uh, so I usually like to be around 42 uh, to 45. And uh, I look at my heart rate variability. Uh, and definitely if I'm doing a lot of physical training, that's going to be impacted. So, so, so Aura makes me more conscious about these choices that I'm doing uh, in, my, in my daily life when it comes to optimizing my, uh, my sleep and my activity around it. And uh, what, I, what I really like about the Aura also is the way how it helps you to find the balance. So many wearables out there and sleep trackers are 
mainly about the duration. They're looking at how much deep sleep you get, how much REM sleep you get, um, uh, what's the total duration of the night. But they don't necessarily say like how you should challenge yourself. Uh, I've seen Aura uh, recommending me to recover a few extra days, even though I've been sleeping eight hours, a perfect night last night, because my nervous system is not recovered yet. That's mm. what I see often with, for example, uh, when I'm dealing dealing with uh, airline travel. Uh, I'm going to be flying out to Portugal tomorrow, so uh, that's probably going to be impacted for a few days, even though if I sleep yeah. uh, enough. Uh, in, in some other days, it might show that even though I've been not sleeping like a full day and night, it might say that your nervous system is fully recovered. You should challenge yourself today. So yeah. I like this kind of like additional, deeper insight uh, that it can really deliver. And um, uh, guys, what's your experience on the O-ring? So you both seem to wear the O-ring. I, I think you both have it. Dan and, and Seam. So Dan, go ahead. I think also like the... Uh, sleeping and readiness scores are very accurate and on point on O-ring, but uh, the yeah, the physical movement that tends to be it's like arbitrary in a sense of like what what does it actually mean if you if you if you if it counts your steps if it counts your calorie count then what you can actually do with that data because it's not it's, of course it can tell like how active you are and uh, how recovered you are from your physical activity but in terms of what intensity that activity was and uh, uh, you know, like there's not much you can do with it yet. I, th I think like the, the, there's some data, but you can't mi mix it together with the other uh, with the other yeah. Uh, data. Yeah, I agree with the exercise tracking when I'm doing strength training. Aura doesn't really contribute yeah, but much. But you can uh, manually add your uh, workout uh, intensity. So, for example, if you do like a strength training session, it asks if it's like uh, low intensity medium or hard mm. so that's that's uh that's what i use and that's what what's giving more accurate approach to it yeah. so and you can also manually add uh, an exercise for example high intensity interval exercise and you can uh, estimate if it's uh if the exercise uh load mm. is what what it's supposed to be or not right so i've, I've been discussing this uh with the with the aura C cto and I think they're gonna come up with something new with the new Aura Ring. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what's coming up. Actually, uh, I have an offer for the new Aura Ring. If anyone is is kind of interested in it uh, and and getting it, so you can get the new Aura Ring uh, with the code BLS, which is Barker's Live Show. So BLS, you can get a seventy-five US dollar discount at OraRing.com. So it's the most world's most sophisticated sleep and recovery tracker it's not a, the most sophisticated activity tracker yet yeah but yeah. hopefully it will be uh one day but definitely what it's kind of taking from there is contributing to their algorithm and i believe they will be improving it in the future yeah i'm <clears throat> i'm optimistic about the aura ring as well uh i've been using one for for a while in fact we could do a whole different show on just theory around tracking um, but mm. I consider when done right that trackers have a variety of types of value that they can provide. One of them is to tell you data about what you have done. But I like to view these as performance enhancing devices in that they get mm. you to do things that you know are good, that you should be doing. They help you work towards your goals because 
they serve as triggers in your environment. They can add notifications that help you reminder that your sleep time is, you know, in an hour. They can give you notifications that let you know that your low intensity marker of physical activity like steps, that you're you're only 2,000 steps away. So you might want to go to for a little walk after dinner. There's all sorts of things that it can do, not just telling you what you've done, but getting you to do what you know you would like to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that they play a really valuable role. There's been a bit of a hype cycle with them. People thought these are going to solve our health problems. The reality is, is that it is a valuable component to an ecosystem that can really help with your health issues. But only if you empower these with value. They, they don't, uh, they're not healthy for you. They help you be healthy. And so there is no device or anything right now that will actually intervene and be healthy for you. But to the degree that these can help you do these things that are knowledgeable, give you more information about yourself, reveal insights mm. about how you're living, then that can keep you engaged. You can have a clear goal. You can keep working towards it. And what I like to say is that I'm much less interested in the night that you got necessarily the most sleep you've ever gotten or the best sleep. I'm more interested in what your average pattern has been like since that night to now, right? What is, mm. do, what is your average pattern versus your peak performances? Of course, you know, it's interesting to assess when we do have peak performances in physical activity or, or sleep or whatever, what were the contributing factors that led to that good performance? But how does that then inform and predict how you, you know, your general pattern of living? Because it is our general pattern of living that is then going to determine you know, are all whether or not we're going to achieve those health outcomes that we look that look for, including how um, you know how well we're performing in daily life. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so you've been working on human OS, and that is combining this wealth of health information, as you are describing in this podcast as well. It's just a scratch of the surface what's available on the platform. Um, so you have different modules here for for different um, things. There's deeper modules going into sleep as well. Uh, here's a free one, the road to health. And um, what I really like about the platform that you have built is, is the way how you, uh, you, in, uh, you include the activity tracking and different data coming from uh, the different health trackers. So here you can see like some modules for uh, health lessons. lessons. Um, and I'm going to show just in a second, here's the integrations page. So you can integrate your health data. You can bring in um, data from iHealth, from Garmin, from Moves, from uh, Fitbits, and um, MFit is a sleep tracker that I use. It's, it's coming in. There's even mm-hmm. more, Strava, Polar, Sumo. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a bunch of things um, that you can tap into this platform. So um, tell us a little bit about Human OS and uh, how did you get started with this? I was doing cancer research in 2002 and my father was diagnosed with cancer right at that time. And I kept trying to use the information that I was utilizing in this population of 180 males that was in in this trial that I was working with to try to get my dad to do some of these things that I thought could benefit him. And I kept telling him information about what he should do. And I would just give him more and more information. And he wasn't able to change anything. And And I think it's always hard to take advice from your child, right? But at the same time, information alone is often insufficient when we're trying to get people to change their behavior. Trackers alone are often insufficient to get to facilitate long-term behavior change. So what I wanted to say, what I, after he passed away, I said, what are, if, you know, what I'm, I'm dedicated to this field of health and helping people be healthy. I need to understand behavior. 
And as a result of that, I developed a behavior model called the loop model to sustain health behaviors. And the, the executive summary of it is in order for people to adopt and sustain these things that can help them perform well in life and live longer and, and with, with full health, they should understand why they're doing something, how to do it, if they're doing it, and if it's working. And so if you look at the first two, the why should I do it is sort of, that's the, that's the book on paleo or veganism or whatever topic, right? It's the rationale for why this matters. And then the next book that those authors write is then the cookbook, right? You know, it's like, here's why paleo is awesome. And then here's how to do it, right? And then you have on the other side, you have these trackers, which I think of as, am I doing the things that get me results? And then you've got uh, the last part is, you know, what are actually my results? So that is a deeper assessment that can be more expensive diagnostics, health risk assessments, blood work, cognitive performance tests, mental performance tests, all ways to then look at a periodic sampling of your health or performance through biomarkers, et cetera, performance tests to then say, what is my level? How does it compare to populations? And what is, where is my trajectory? If you have multiple uh, you know, periodic uh, data samples over that. So overall, what I consider human OS is this um, personal health mastery ecosystem. And there are so many different things that we need to learn, but to what degree do we need to understand them in order to exploit that information for our benefit? Do you need to be a professor at sleep or fasting or the Mediterranean diet or paleo? No, but your ability to speak fluently on these individual subjects drastically enhances your ability to exploit that information for your health. And what I mean by that is your ability to sit down and have a conversation with a friend about these things is a lot different than just being familiar with them where you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, but I can't tell you about it. And so these courses that we've created, they're all peer reviewed. They're short. This road of health is basically the thesis of what human OS is about. And it's 26 minutes. It's the first thing we try to get people to do mm. is that before we start having you engage with your health, watch this course and get in the right mindset. What is the problem? What are these available tools? What is your role in this? Because we over outsource oftentimes, whether it's subconscious or not, we're over outsourcing our health as though it's the responsibility of our doctor, our government, or even our health tracker. Like, yeah, I wore that. I wore my Fitbit or my aura ring for a little bit. It didn't really help me. Well, yeah, that's, I can actually see that you have to use it to help you. So it's all about putting people in the right frame of mind. And then we've got tools that just try to make today easier. So not only are you tracking and setting goals uh, towards what I call the mundane, but meaningful, these are things that are really important, but kind of mundane and easy to forget, right? They get sleep is one of them. It's yeah. super important, but it's easy to push it to the background when you want to watch another show of Netflix or whatever. And so how do you, you might learn something, find it compelling, but what's going to ensure that you're still doing that eight months later. And I think probably one of the most important parts is getting enough information and familiarity where you want to continue to do it, but then also having tools that then make it easier, remind you, and you know, keep you honest and engaged when life gets in the way. And so the goal here with Human OS is we're going to continue to create all sorts of health courses on different subjects. They're all created with people that are usually published in the space and reviewed by a college professor. That doesn't guarantee they're accurate, but what I think is really important in today's world is to try a good to take on it. Yeah. Yeah. To just get, you know, have a level of review that increases the level of quality of the knowledge. And they're also all divided into like one to three minute lessons so that 
you could watch a whole course in one sitting, but you can also use, sort of view it like Instagram, where if you have a break, you're on a bus or you have a break in meeting, you can just go watch a few lessons. So um, that's basically mm -hmm. the concept. And um, as you can see, I think that really the vision for health is an ecosystem and not the individual tools that comprise it. Because each one of these individual tools, whether it's information or tracking or health risk assessments or even daily workouts and recipes, they're all individually powerful, but they're all individually insufficient to completely, to, to serve as a complete solution. And so it's when they come together that there's real synergy and power. And that's been this, it's been the vision that I've been working on. Oh, that's, Ooh. that's really beautiful. But... Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, we've been, we've been working with you to get these to people. So if anyone mm. is interested in the human OS wants to try it out. You can go to humanos.me. You can sign up. You actually get to look at the road of health for free. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. we give that away for free. Yeah. Yeah. So you get that for free. You can sign up. You can try the integrations and all that. And if you like what you see, you can sign up for the pro version to unlock access to all the other content modules. And um, Dan was kind enough to give that for one dollar for the first month. So you can use the code BLS, which is Biker's Live Show. So BLS at checkout and you'll get it for $1. So hopefully that works for you guys. And um, take a look at Human OS. I was really genuinely surprised when I when I saw this platform. It's so, so well designed. Mm. It's simple. Mm. There is nothing additional. And the content is great, just like Dan is, uh, just like an amazing person with a wealth of knowledge to share. And that's what uh, this platform is all about. It's an embodiment of, of, of what Dan is up to. So uh, for anyone you. out there, I mean, just take a look at that one. It's pretty good. Yeah, my, my goal is to create high value, low cost health solutions for people so that anybody that has interest can have access and can gain um, real skills and knowledge. So the way that we communicate is it's we're very... Um, specific. So the idea is even though we're going to go into details, the detail, all you have to have is interest and we're going to explain the story of what this means. We're not going to get lost in the details, which details are very important, but for public, for changing behavior, it's more important to understand the concepts deeply. And we use analogy. We sometimes, you know, we use details only to em emphasize the concepts. And they're not lightweight. It's not the superficial idea, but they also are accessible. And mm. um, there's a lot of innovation throughout the site. So we're doing some really cool stuff with recipes that basically, you know, the daily recipes that come up, like a lot of things that we've created are on the scheduler. So imagine you buy a cookbook, right? When that cookbook is awesome, you, but you put it on a shelf mm. and it collects dust and it's, it's there. These every day we take one of the recipes and we make it your recipe of the day. So you're actually getting the information that you have surfaced to you. It's reminding you what you have. And we're now creating, it's not available yet, but basically health attributes. So if you pull up one recipe, let's say it's going to instruct you, what are the different phytochemicals that are in here? What are the, what do they do? And so you're sort of learning by interacting. Um, yeah. There's, there's uh, hmm. lots of different thinking about how this can be helpful. Hmm. So uh, where do you, where do you find you're going to take this platform in the future? Like, I mean, this is just the beginning. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that um, I'm, you know, finding communities like yours that are on the same crusade of trying to 
um, understand those determinants of health, communicating them in really fresh novel ways that are attractive. I mean, the, the, the materials that you guys produce um, are just top notch and that matters, mm. you know, in the, in, in the attention economy, you have to have, I think, really good quality, you know, not only information, but you have to deliver it in a way that is, that is compelling and sexy and attractive and you guys knock it out of the park. And so what I'm looking to do is then, you know, we're a very small team. This is a self-funded project. I'd actually do all the design in the site. Um, <laughs> oh, you did it all I, yourself? Oh my goodness. I did. Yeah. A lot of work. Yes. A lot of, a lot of talent. Yeah. <laughs> You're a multi-talent man. <laughs> I do it all. In, if you can believe it, it's all done in PowerPoint. That's how that's my medium for design. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm working keynote myself. I mean, that's kind of like that. Yeah. Like yeah endless yeah. battle, endless battle. So anyone interested, take a look at it. And, and um, this is a good opportunity also to remind that we have the Biohacker Summit coming in 18th of May in Stockholm. It's the World's Top Optimal Human Performance Conference. And this will be our second edition in, in Stockholm. Simland is going to be there. Uh, Don can't join himself, but there's going to be um, uh, another uh, guy from his team. Who was he? Greg Potter. Ah, Greg, Greg is... A, a, an all-star and i'd like to say and I, i mentioned to you guys before the show started that there is no conference that i would that i'm more interested in attending and participating in than yours and i say that honestly mm. um it's been a the it, timing wise it's it's tough for me to come uh but i cannot wait to come to a future uh, future event but in my absence is somebody way better than me his name's greg potter And he's a um, soon-to-be PhD who understands circadian physiology and its impact on metabolism um, better than most people in the world. And um, he's a very bright guy who's very charismatic and uh, is a great presenter too. So I'm I'm really thrilled that he gets to come and represent Human OS in in your community. Mm. Yeah, we are also thrilled to have him there. Yes. So if anyone is interested in circadian rhythms, um, optimizing recovery the daylight cycle, all of those. Those are the topics that we are covering at the Biohacker Summit in Stockholm. So, so the event is 18th of May, and uh, there's going to be a bunch of stuff when it comes to uh, optimizing recovery and peak performance. We, we will also have neurofeedback workshop there. So mm. uh, Dr. Andrew Hill is flying in from the US, and he's going to be running some neurofeedback sessions for people interested in optimizing their brains. So uh, you definitely don't want to miss on that one. Uh, if you do... Next year, we're going to be in Helsinki again, and hopefully we will have Don Party there as well, partying with us. Party, and party. Seamless yes. yeah. also. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. So if you want to hang around with us. So, um, I mean, we have to come to the close eventually. Um, it has been a blast talking to you, Dan, and, and kind of picking it into your brain and hearing what you think about the circadian rhythms and the daylight cycle and optimized recovery and all that. And um, this is our first episode of the Biohackers Live Show. If mm. you like what you see, kind of like, share, uh, send us a note. We'll be we'll be happy to produce more awesome content like this. All right, that's it for this episode. Make sure you leave us a review on iTunes and other social media platforms. But also make sure you check out the Biohackers Live Show. We're gonna start doing live streams weekly on their Facebook page and YouTube channel. My name is Seem. Stay optimized, stay empowered.